set. Thank you. Ready? All set. Thanks. Well, good afternoon. It's our pleasure to have Professor Jin Camp today as the speaker of our seminar. Um, Professor Jin Camp's research interest falls in the interaction of uh, social, economic, and technical trust. And for the people who have done research in privacy and trust, Jin Camp is, is a very well-known name and really does not need much of introduction. Professor Jin Camp is currently at Indiana University School of Informatics, and prior to that has been working in this area of research at Sandia National Laboratories and Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Professor Camp. Thank you. All right, I want to talk today about a different way to think about security and designing security. The core argument I'll make during this entire presentation is that you need to design a security system that functions within the social and economic environment in which it is implemented. In particular, I'm going to look at how we embed trust using social context. The core of this system is not that we will cryptographically verify that fishers, those who implement phishing attacks, are bad parties. The point is to enhance individuals' ability to make trust decisions. All right? So I'm going to talk about the, the definition. Do I have to? Hey, standing back there. I'm going to talk about a very different way to design the system, a way in which you start with the human being who uses the system and the task they're trying to, trying to fulfill, right? So there, we had this joke at Sandia National Labs when I was in the security group. They said, oh, you know, you need to come over now and add the security to it. And we said, oh, just run it slow. You know, nobody, we never really did that. But that, that's the idea that security is something that gets in people's way and people want to avoid it, right? The proposed system, we look at the interfaces. I talk a little bit about the simulation. If I have time, I'll talk about the protocols. And, but before you see, you'll see how the interfaces lead to the protocols. And I will leave this presentation. You'll have the entire presentation with the protocol slides if you're interested in obtaining it. So it's on this computer. So what's our core problem statement? This is our core problem. We need to create reliable economic signals to inform individual decisions. I will assert that no human being has ever been so drunken that they walked into an internet kiosk in Nigeria and thought they were at the bank. All right? I'm just going just gonna to push that assertion to you. We have thousands of people do that every day on the internet. People are not making informed trust decisions. All right? So let's talk about designing for trust. Let's start with human trust behaviors. It's very different instead of starting to discuss your work factors. Trust, what is it? Fundamentally, trust is about simplification. Trust enables activities to happen that could not happen otherwise. So that's why trust but verify is kind of a joke, because if you can verify, you don't have to trust. The, there are three things that make a decision trust. One, the action cannot happen without it. Two, there's a time lag. Like, OK, I'm not really trusting him not to poke me in the eye with a pen for two reasons. One, I have glasses, so I'm protected. Two, he would do it immediately, and I know it was done. You see, there's not a time lag. Whereas if I gave you a message or a pen, and I said, promise me you're going to poke somebody in the eye with that pen later, there'd be a time lag, and it would be trust. And then the third thing is um, you cannot necessarily know who is the responsible party if it happens later. The thing about trust is it encompasses what we think of as discrete technical problems. We solve 
problems like confidentiality in transmission, which is an element of trust from the end user. And it embeds discrete policy problems. If they have great data security in terms of their network, and whenever I call the business center helpline, I get you know anatomical suggestions, I don't think that that's trust. Let's think about human trust and computer trust, human trust. There are a lot of experiments about how people ex extend trust. Almost every cryptographic system is built with the opposite assumption of trust behaviors, right? Because computers aren't people. And at the philosophical level, trust is a need. So you need to accept that individuals will begin with being trustworthy. And that it's a tool for simplification. You want people to trust, you make it easy for them. You want them not to trust, you make it easy for them. And finally, you can look at trust as game theoretic. There's been a lot of research on how human beings behave with respect to trust. One of them says, human beings don't differentiate between machines. Computers are very good at differentiating and not very good at categorizing, right? What's a table? You and I, if we walked in and there were a table, and it was here, it was this wide, and it only had one leg, would not be confused and say, oh, one leg, it's a stool, right? The computer would be confused. So we like to lump, and computers like to differentiate. Com humans also become more trusting of the network. Every study of human trust has shown that people, the more they use the computer, generally instead of becoming more savvy and slick, they generalize. They say, well, I've used this computer a lot, and it hasn't exploded, so I'll go ahead and trust it. Is there a, a major road next to this university by any chance? 65? Yeah, okay. So where, when, when I worked at um, Harvard, there's this incredibly busy road, Massachusetts Avenue, that goes right through Harvard Square. And the students are as smart as students anywhere. And they would walk across that road back and forth every day. And, they, and every semester, some student would get hit because they didn't look. Why didn't they look? Because they'd walked across that road successfully every day. We do the same thing with computers. We're very bad at risk. And we default to trust. And like I said there in the slide, there are reams of validation of how people default to trust. And that is what so much fraud is about. If somebody comes up to you and says, I lost my wallet, the first thing you think is, oh, they lost their wallet, right? Not, oh, I wonder if they're armed. Because they're obviously a fraudster. OK, a lot of computer scientists would be more likely to think, I wonder if they're armed. So one of the things we need to think about when we design for trust is what are we really trying to do? Are we trying to get people to trust the network? Are we trying to get people to mistrust wisely? It's a different kind of argument. And that's where the signaling part comes in. You want people to be able to distinguish the good resources and the bad ones. People are too trusting. They learn to trust, and then they trust even more, right? And we need to add an element of mistrust and differentiation, another human behavior. The tendency to differentiate between remote machines decreases with computer experience. Not with computer education, right? Experience is different from education. You could have played 4,000 hours on World of Warcraft and still believe that when you hit delete, your file goes into Never Never Land. So experience increases trust. One of the um, most common complaints at Harvard was, my internet is down. What did you do to my internet? Like, No, it's not your internet. It, but it shows a very clear model that the internet that I go to is safe and it's trustworthy. Again, we need do not trust signals. Now, it turns out that users are really bad security managers. In fact, not only do we not have do not trust signals, we have trust signals, and then you're supposed to notice that it's not there if, and learn not to trust, right? It's like, do you notice that I'm not wearing a hat? Would you notice if I were not wearing glasses? Humans are not very good at that. Um, 
So, it, you know, you want it to be a default. And there are pretty much two ways to do this. You can educate all net users to behave the way we think they ought to, or you can assume they are. Computer security is built for machines and another example, passwords. Here's your basic rule of passwords. Think of something you can't remember. <laughs> Don't write it down. Who can't, this is not a human design. So SSL, two categories, secure and not secure. If you have the ability to draw a little box over the little tiny, tiny, tiny red warning sign, you can look secure. And there has been one documented case of SSL-enabled SSL phishing. How did that happen? Somebody went to VeriSign and paid them money. Shockingly enough, VeriSign gave them a key. And then look at something like, um, you guys know pretty, the P3P, the platform for privacy preferences, where a vendor asserts, this is what I'll do. I promise I'll respect your privacy. Well, what if the vendor's lying? It turned, I mean, I suspect that if phishing sites had privacy policies, they'd be pretty good. You don't want other people stealing those credit cards. You've just gone to all that trouble to steal, do you? That's work. Okay, it also assumes one standard for all transactions. PGP, all right, I trust you. You tell me to trust these guys. This is what I call the Sandra D problem. Anybody watch, you know, the movie Grease? Okay, so she comes in, I, I personally don't like that movie, because she comes in and she's like headed for a scholarship at university, but she meets Eugene, and so she meets all of Eugene's friends, and so she ends up deciding she's not going to go to college, she's going to have life, you know, wearing leather at the bowling alley instead, right? So maybe I just see this too much like a parent. But that is a problem that she met one person in the network, so she met all these bad people in the network that trust distinguishes. So you introduce me to everybody in class, and then you introduce me to a whole nother set of people, it turns out later that you're not trustworthy. That doesn't get backed out in the web of trust. There's not a path dependency. Key revocation, another example, great example. This is, um, oh, there, your verifier, which she was talking about, you have different levels of revocation in your verifier. It makes a difference if somebody credit card is stolen if it expires or if when they showed up it was stolen to begin with. There are different kinds of revocation. All right. So I've argued human trust is an important element of computer security design. One, that's the first thing I've argued here. Two, that computer security currently is built in a way that is in opposition to human trust behaviors. So everybody is with me now. Okay. What are we going to do? What should we do? One, we get computers to do what computers are good at. What are computers good at? They're good at processing data, storing data, transmitting data and distinguishing between very different types of failures. What are humans good at? We're very good at understanding context. We're good at lumping behaviors, right? We can evaluate uncertainty. Maybe not with the level of detail a computer can evaluate uncertainty mathematically, but Human beings are fairly good at order of magnitude risk evaluations. Incidentally, especially the demographic of college students, graduate students, as you get older, you start overestimating risk. But at your age, you're very good at statistically speaking. So let's start with humans. So what do humans have with trust? We have pre-existing social capital. We have a tendency to trust each other. We have social networks, networks of friends, right? That's what I want to talk about building on. So the first thing is we have to think about, well, what, what do we want to build for users? We have to have a meaningful signal if we want to build this for users. 
So it turns out we're not even talking to users, right? So identity theft. Identity theft worries many people, and reasonably so. It's unauthorized use of authenticating information to assert identity in the financial namespace. I'm just saying that's a good, solid definition. That's not what we call it in security. ChoicePoint had an internal process violation. They accidentally faxed 145,000 records to Kinko's. I think this is some kind of achievement, actually. <laughs> And they didn't notice it was the Kinko's and that it wasn't a real business. In fact, they didn't notice that the six businesses they thought they were faxing to all had as their office the Kinko's. So it was, you'll be relieved to know, a violation of their own internal process that says we do not fax huge chunks of information to Kinko's. In Berkeley, there was a security violation. There was, this is a process violation, right? We know these are different. A process violation is different from a security violation, which is different from a confidentiality problem. Bank of America, right, backup data 1.2 million records because they lost their backup data and they, don't, they did not at this time encrypt their backup data, right? This is the same for everyone. Everyone who lost a social security, in, Everyone whose social security number was picked up by a thief had the same experience. They don't want to hear about internal process violations. They want to hear about being safe from identity theft. There we go. Ooh. I don't like standing behind this because I feel like you're so distant. But this isn't working either. Ha. Huh. So. One of the things people are pretty good at are making contextual decisions. This is the ladies' jewelry market in Hong Kong. This is Tiffany's on Fifth Avenue. You can buy pearls at both of these places. One place is better in terms of credit card fraud than the other place. One place is better in terms of accurately representing whether or not pearls are natural pearls, whether or not they're, they're fresh water, right? Can you guess which one of those is more you know, trustworthy? We have offline a lot of ways to identify resources as good or bad because we have a lot of context. Now, compare this. This is even more extreme. You know, at least those were both jewelry markets, right? This is a bank. This is, this is like somebody's machine in somebody's house that's owned, that is being manipulated by organized crime, right? And look at the difference here. Here's the difference, right? It says SunTrust Online, and the URL is different. But that's a decent, you've got to admit, checking space SunTrust is a pretty good phishing URL, right? At least they have a, I thought this was a fairly good phishing site. How are we going to solve this? Well, economics tells us that signaling is a way to solve this. Because what you have in Tiffany's and the Hong Kong jewelry market are a set of economic signals. In economics, a signal is an element of information that is difficult to falsify and that, and that differentiates resource types. So certainly, as you're here getting your master's degree, you're learning something very valuable and you're participating in a you know, a socially valuable endeavor. The other thing you are is you're getting a signal. When you give this master's degree to an employer, it will say, oh, you're the kind of person who can figure out what classes to take, who will get up in the morning and show up for classes and finish your work by deadline, and you have the intellectual capacity to master this material. It's not, it's a signal to your employer. That's what straight A's are. They're a signal that says, I'll go that extra mile that's required every time. 
even in those classes where they were 7 in the morning and I had to show up every day, it's a signal. The other thing you can do is try to increase the cost of fraud for the fraudster, right, not for the bank. There's, there's a lot of successful increase in cost of fraud for the bank in identity theft. We're not, it's not something I'm advocating here. And you can do that by um, changing the authentication mechanisms. You can do that by increasing the difficulty of obtaining credit. But there's been a tremendous amount of hostility to that. People like easy credit. You can do identity confirmation. Identity confirmation is often a solution to this. Well, signaling right now is pretty bad. These, uh, this means that they follow the Child's Online Privacy Act. This means, hey, we're not felons. I'm so proud. This means they are a business in good standing with a Better Business Bureau. The one above it says you're a business in good standing with a Better Business Bureau, and you follow the European directive on data protection. You have those requirements. Um, this is just, I don't know, these, these are kind of redundant. This one, the trustee means that you follow your own privacy statement. You might notice that Amazon has a trustee seal. Amazon's privacy policy is you have no privacy, get used to it. It's ours and it's staying ours. Get over it, okay? But they follow that privacy policy, so they have the seal. I really like this one. I got this off a shopping site, and as far as I can tell, it doesn't mean anything, but it looks really good. It's very confidence-inspiring. So I don't think these are particularly useful because they're not economic signals, because economic signals are difficult to falsify. Those are very easy. In fact, in every one of those cases, the, like if you click here, instead of looking at the website, the, so the website, it goes, you know, HTTP request and you get information about where you were directed from. It, these Better Business Bureau and um, trustee look at the string that is sent to them by the website that you're clicking to verify on. So you can copy the site, you copy the little piece of code to your website <laughs> and it says, in that other site it would say, is SunTrust checking good? Oh yes, SunTrust checking is good. But what the user sees is, is this website that claims to be SunTrust checking good. See the difference? It doesn't check the URL from, it checks what's in the call to the site. Okay. So I say it's, you know, th this kind of seal is more useful, at least, you know, they're cuddlier. Right. Identity confirmation, well, we have identity confirmation. It turns out, VeriSign protects you from anybody's money they won't take. Anybody that, you know, that won't give them money, you're safe, right? This is not a very good identity mechanism, really. And the other thing is uniqueness. There's this thing called the Joe Wilson problem, which predates Valerie Plame's exposure as a covert agent. It turns out there are two guys named John Q. Wilson, Joe Q. Wilson, who work for Intel. And one of them works with um, Ellison, Carl Ellison, one of the inventors of PKI. They constantly get each other's email. They're John, they're Joe Q. Wilson at Intel, right? How do you resolve that? How do you make it so that when I look up my long lost cousin, Joe Wilson, who I finally saw at the reunion that I hadn't attended forever. I remember he's Joe Wilson at Intel, right? It's a very specific Joe Wilson. But the, and in a physical environment, I wouldn't not have a problem telling the two Joe Wilsons apart. In the social network, they're very distinct. But in terms of name and identity, we have a lot of namespaces, right? I mean, I have in my wallet, this thing that says, I can drive. It's also used to say, I can have a job and an American citizen, right? You can show it and say, well, I can get a job. Well, you know what? You don't have to be a citizen to get a driver's license. And 
No Department of Motor Vehicles wants you to have to be a citizen to get a driver's license because they prefer that all the people that are driving and, they're, and they don't have legal residency have taken a driver's safety course and have insurance, right? So the namespace has got to fit with the identity. There's a namespace in which I'm Gene Camp that's the professor, I'm the professor. Right? I know a tremendous amount about economics of information security. As soon as I leave here, I'm getting in my car and I'm roaring home to be the mom. Right? These are very different roles. I have all the same identifiers. There's no single source of legitimate trust. So you're going to say, all right, trust the, trust the tax, trust the Social Security, right? Who are we going to trust? The, wait, no, I don't trust the government. And in fact, shouldn't the government tell me if Walmart is a good place to buy shoes? Should it tell me if I should go buy my shoes at Prada? Do people who shop at Prada, you guys know what Prada is, right? Okay. Do they want to go to Walmart for shoes? Is an identity confirmation system that says good place to shop going to, it's no, not in any, any kind of economic context we can imagine. So there's just nothing, oh. All right, I'd just like to say that this is Microsoft's fault. <laughs> because it is, because I put it up and I looked to see if the images were there. I said, oh good, usually Microsoft does some strange thing when I transfer Microsoft from the Macintosh to Microsoft to the Microsoft OS. One time it changed all my bullets to little hands. All right, but the point is that our, we had a big trust challenge on the internet, right? So you can hear, I'm sure you've heard people say, well, you know, back when the, I was on the internet, we didn't have all that. You could trust people. And depending on how old they were, that was before 1984, 1987, or 1991 when AOL joined the internet, after which we all agreed that it was not a trusted environment. The big challenge was enabling monetary flows. SSL did that. It enabled monetary flows. There we go. Our second trust challenge is providing meaningful trust information. And where are we? We do provide some, we provide meaning-free trust information, right? And there are namespaces for specific trust assertions. You can go to websites or there and say, all right, I want to shop at Christian websites. I want to shop at gay positive websites. There's this thing called the pink pages that you can go to and look for like female plumbers in a zip code so that you're shopping pink. But it requires an understanding of the limits of the namespace, right? Okay, transitivity. You can drive, you have a driver's license, can you vote? Probably. You can probably as a, an illegal resident go and vote in the U.S. if you have a driver's license. I know of personally several cases where this has happened from, I know personally of documentation of cases where this has happened. I don't pick people up and take them to vote illegally. Um, well, can you automate trust decisions? Well, automation of context requires that the context is the same. All right, so let's take something, purchasing a book. There we go. Purchasing a book has the same privacy and trust implications. Well, no, it doesn't. What if it's, on, there may be a difference between, say, pur purchasing a, divorce, a book on divorce. Do you want that to pop up on your home computer? How to choose a, you know, it's like, oh. Maybe I should have talked to you about this. Impotency, you want that, you know, your boss. There was a case in which, and there, there is an ad, there, uh, there, there, and this was prohibited under HIPAA. Before HIPAA, there was a service you could get. You could send the names of all your employees who were chronically late to the medical data clearinghouse in Massachusetts and they would send you the names of the ones that weren't on Prozac yet. And then so they could go to their doctor and get a free sample because if you're late, you must be depressed, right? So um, effective job searching, number theory. Do you want your boss to know about your effective job searching book? 
These are all books, right? So how do we deal with this? I argue that what we need to do is embed trust in context, all right? So Alice and Bob, they get around, don't they? But usually, Alice has never met Bob. It is my contention that in decades of transmitting information, Alice and Bob met. In fact, I think Alice and Bob met sometime in the 50s. They know each other pretty well now. Alice is friends with Bob, which is why she keeps trying to communicate with him. She trusts Bob's opinion. Bob likes that website. Alice has never heard of that website and may not trust that website, but she will inform her trust decision with Bob's experience on the website. It's not an automatic trust generator. So what does that mean? We use a social network, right? Now most of your social net, who here has a buddy list, right? You got a social network built in. It's already extant. So what we do is import buddy list, as well as well-known, you know, user-selected central authorities. We call them broadcasters in the system, you know, so you can have a broadcaster or buddy. So what the net trust system does is it displays meaningful information so they can make an educated decision about the trustworthiness of a website. So let me see if I can get the mouse going here. We did these user tests. So since I've done these user tests, you see how that face has kind of, um, uh, it's not happy. We, we replaced all moderately not happy faces with um, Mr. Yuck faces. So I'm going to talk, I'll talk to you now about how this works. All right. This is your friend. So you have 10 people in your buddy list. And they can rate the site, and it's got a 6 out of a 10 rating. Okay? This is your context. You can have a context that says, so, Professor Jean, I have a social network. It turns out, as mom, I have a very different social network. And I don't necessarily want to broadcast to my friends all the places I shop as mom. Right? Nor are they interested frankly. So I have different social networks and the information that I share is different with social network in these social networks and the information I get is from different people. I would really honor my mother's opinion of a fabric store. I really want Matt Blaze's opinion of a seller of security services. Right? So this is what your buddies think. This determines both from whom in you're getting information and with whom you share information. So one of those settings is always private. It is always the case that you can choose not to share any information with a user about what website you're on. Okay? All right. Again, I'd just like to blame Microsoft for this moment. We did an initial usability test. We looked at the three different websites, all of which were made up, all of which had similar designs based on the usability literature about trust, right? We had no human faces. We had one human face next to, on the main page, one human face next to the to the primary pay, to the privacy policy. We had the same privacy policies. We used similar fonts. We had the same level of effect. All right? This toolbar vastly increased the amount of trust, right? The Better Business Bureau is very happy with this website. Google thinks this is a website with lots of Google juice. PayPal says, we've never heard of these people. The FDIC, we don't think they're a bank. All right? That's why I included that. Without the toolbar, oh, you can't see this, went off 52%, so they don't trust the site. Here it went from 60 to 42. Here it went down to about 18. We had our best response on this one. And then the third one, okay, it was green. People hated it. 80% didn't trust the site. 76%. 
So what I think is interesting is 76% is a 4% increase. If this doesn't just, you know, your friends liked it, but what did the Better Business Bureau think? This is what I would call a mistrust signal. Does this indicate to you that this is not a website of which the Better Business Bureau approves? This is not subtle. This is like the little man is throwing up on your computer. But what we thought was interesting is that the peer feedback dominates the negative feedback. That just because it's existed, even though the Better Business Bureau didn't like it, the peer feedback dominated. So we have since then done another experiment with 75%. And what we did is we had a mixed toolbar, a positive toolbar, a negative toolbar, and a reverse mixed toolbar. That is to say, we had one toolbar in which the Better Business Bureau and PayPal hated the site and all your friends liked it. And we had one toolbar in which your friends didn't like it, but PayPal and the Better Business Bureau did like it. And it, it was consistent. People trust their friends more than they trust centralized authorities. And that makes sense, right? I mean, look at your demographic. The centralized authorities, your friends will take you drinking. The centralized authorities will send you to war. Who should you trust, you know? So all in all, people found the system useful, easy to use. It's easy to use, and it's useful. So 80% of the participants found the signals meaningful. These were meaningful signals. You will not get 80% of users find the trustee stamp meaningful, okay? 80% said they would enjoy using the system, the same ones that are meaningful. So will this work in, will this work in theory? Will this even work in theory? So the way we decided, will this work in theory? We used uh, simple agent modeling and talked about resources. So 95% of the resources are good, right? Most people are not fishers. Most websites. Most people won't even steal your wallet. 5% are bad. The 5% that are bad have distinct temporal signatures. That is an, an important assumption. All right, let me talk to you about these ratings. I see this. This is great. Ah, here we go. This rating becomes non-zero on your second visit. It becomes non-zero on your second visit, and it must occur at least 72 hours after your first visit. So when you first visit a site, there is a one-level URL, meaning like www.chicken.org slash recipes, right? That's one-level URL. And when you go, if you don't, if you never go back, you haven't rated it at all. It only gets a positive rating if you return to the website after 72 hours. Most phishing websites are shut down in less than 72 hours. So they have distinct temporal signatures. So they cannot get a positive rating here. This rating is a whitelist. These, these are all downloadable whitelist ratings. Because one of the critical points about the system is that you decide who knows your information. The Microsoft anti-phishing toolbar sends your browsing information to Microsoft, right? as opposed to you and your friends deciding this is a trustworthy site, you and your friends and everyone else in the universe tells Microsoft where they're browsing, and then Microsoft tells you whether or not it's a good site. It's a very different privacy model. And in fact, it doesn't solve the Walmart Prada problem. The Prada people don't want to know what the Walmart people think. And the Walmart people think the Prada people are out of their minds and have no idea how much a shoe is supposed to cost, right? So you have your own social group, and you select the swipe list. You periodically download the whitelist. You don't send information back to them, right? 
So when I gave this talk at Google, they told me, they, I said, I thought the list of about 50,000 would get the most popular websites. Am I wrong? And I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody from Google, but it's a one-way information exchange. And after some discussion, they were like, no, you are not wrong. So I feel pretty good about this. Maybe they meant, no, you're not so wrong. You're going to fall off the building, but all right. So resources are bad or good. Bad resources do not exhibit strategic behavior, right? So if I'm trying to steal money from you in, as opposed to a wholesale fishing way, kind of a, a retail personal way, if I said, oh, I lost my wallet. I've got to have 50 bucks so I can get home to the kids. Isn't that appealing? Shouldn't he give me 50 bucks? And he might respond, how did you lose your wallet? Oh, let me tell you. And then I, I'm, I'm strategic in my interaction with him. I'll give you my, uh, do you have a pen? I'll give you my name and address. Right? So you can, mo in that kind of situation, the person is acting strategically. In phishing attacks, they're not. They go up and they try to draw people to them. They don't have strategic temporal behaviors. Good resources have an enduring identifier. That's all this requires. Good resources have an, an enduring identifier. Bad resources are limited in their ability to have strategic temporal behavior. Okay? And that there's a limited ability to discern type among the users. So we have this network, and it's got like 5% really clueful people that are right 95% of the time. Every time they see a resource, they say, this is a phishing attack. This is a bad resource. This is a good resource. So they've got some people that are very close to right. Um, so this, and then they tell their friends, and then their friends, right, have a 50-50 chance of getting it right. They're basically flipping coins. This is, we're talking my second cousin here. My second cousin with an alcohol level of mm, 0.1. All right. Very simple, very simple model of network actors, right? We use this, um, that's a, a very simple model where you have close links and then you generate random links. So think of it as, um, think of it as a circle where you're connected to your immediate neighbor and then a certain number of links across the circle, a certain distance are generated, right? So that's our social network link, that you're close to the, to the pods next to you and you are randomly connected with some other network, okay? And the decision rule, a number of the neighbors who've also visited and typed that resource. And most of them are just kind of wandering around the internet, pretty much clue-free. So under the basic conditions, networked actors are very good at rejecting bad resources. In fact, these actors um, can achieve up to about 95% results. The guys who started out just flipping coins, they get up to about 95% right just by having a social network depth of two and having that information feed to them. They do need some exogenous information sources. We have the exogenous information sources. Those are the little happy faces and Mr. Yuck, okay? So we, there's reason to believe that the theory is good, that you can compile and leverage human trust behavior, and the simulation suggests potential value. That leaves us with another question, which is how to build it. So I thought about the monkeys at the typewriter thing, but I decided that was taking this whole peer production too far. So our work in progress. We have a hash-based distributed file system. When I distribute the gene, professor gene, I have a 108-bit random number that is the name of an RSS feed, okay? That RSS feed is nowhere publicly connected to me. It's registered only on my computer. The only people who know it connects to me are the people who I invite to participate. 
it is true that human betrayal remains possible in this system. But within that constraint, you control who knows information about you. Similarly, mom, also known as me in a different context, has another random 128-bit number. Okay? And these, I call them pseudo-public keys, because there's no PKI, it's just a signature key. You get a random number and a public key when you join my little group of sharing friends. That way you can check my download, you can check my history feed that I'm sharing you. All right? So I have about two minutes and 40 seconds left, so I have the other protocol slides. The conclusion is using context for signaling provides a unique context based on personal history because your own personal history feeds back. Except, if you mark a website private, there is no record kept of that visit, period. So if you go to, you know, like wildboysintrouble4.com, that is your, and then you get fished, you won't know because you kept no record. It's not like, Oh, it's private, so you should know. If it's private, it's private. It's dropped. You can have your own site. You can have your own personal social network of one where you feed back with yourself, but your private feed does not affect your ratings because we don't keep the history, because we felt it was important that private meant private, not private except for it's in this file at work. And we are working to develop prototypes. And then the rest of the slides talk about how you get invited. We said you don't want to start with a single trusted server, um, but in fact, of course, on our prototype, we'll have one server and we're going to add the distributed uh, file table later because we want it to work first. And these are our protocol assumptions. We're assuming that the operating system is not on a malicious platform. If the operating system is malicious, all bets are off, right? So thank you for your time. You have 59 seconds to ask questions. There are also three papers on this written from various perspectives. You can see these references. The first one is the Social Sciences Research Networking Conference. It has all the trust references. You'll find about 35 references on human trust in that paper. The second one is on, is it DIMAX, where we talk much more about the protocol. And the third is about peer production of security and privacy. And in that, we talk about the network theory and the simulation. Would any, do you guys use this? Would you use that? Would anybody here use this? If you could just share selected histories with your friends. I've got some nods and one look of physical discomfort. <laughs> Questions? Does this affect the websites that you visit just once? There are websites that we just go once. I mean, for banking, we are pretty sure that this is the right website unless the URL suddenly becomes really long. But um, we Google so many things and we just click on websites while searching for material. So does this really, um, like the reputation or the history of such websites, does it uh, matter? Well, that's an excellent question because the efficacy of the system critically depends upon the homophily of the social network. That is to say, if my social network is highly self-correlating, how many people in here have been to Matt Blaze's crypto site? Okay. How many people here are not going to raise their hand no matter what I ask? <laughs> How many people here go to uh, Schneier's cryptograms, right? You have a fairly high degree of 
homophily. How many here bank at the Purdue Credit Union? It's per right? Your social network is likely to have a high degree of homophily. You, even if you had this group of people here, you would have very strong signaling for many of your leisure websites. Now, it only works to the extent that which that's true, and that's why we also have other major websites. If you go to the identity management website, you probably want to know, is this you know, a popular identity management website, right? Is this in the top you know, 50,000 websites that are visited, or is this one that my friends in identity management visit? Those are two different questions. In that case, you want to know the second question. If what you want to do is buy flowers, you probably want to go to one of just the top generically visited websites. And in terms of the websites, you just click once. Yeah, hopefully nobody went to see the hamster dance twice. That's just, you know. <laughs> The others? Okay, go, one more. Yes, um, following this question, have you thought of, uh, in, in your ongoing research, have you thought of putting some constructs for, for measuring, like this reputation, this, this signaling thing, like the number of transactions with one specific site, or the history, or the period of time that they're doing, so you, you come up with some measures for, for this trust? We do not, we do measure how often you visit a site. We measure how, um, how many times you visited a site with the ex expectation that it's 24 hours between each visit. And that's how we define visits temporally because that's the simplest way. And then your visit decays. That is to say, if you visited it three times and you can have a maximum score up to five, so you start to decay. After 24 hours, it goes up. And then it starts to decay. It goes down to one and a half, right? But then when you visit it the next time, it goes up to four, and it will go down to two. So the idea is that there's also a decay over time. If you visited a site last week and the week before and the week before that, that is a site that you might rate more positively than if you visited the site three times when you were in high school. That's probably all the time we have. Thank you, Jean. Thank you.